guys, this is Shay. So there's a weird little clicky noise at the beginning in between the guitar and the beginning of this, and I apologize. I'm using Audacity instead of GarageBand for the first time, and I have absolutely no clue what I'm doing, so hopefully everything sounds okay. Um, I have a feeling I need to turn off my fan because I feel like I can hear it humming in the background. Um, so anyway, today's episode is about loneliness, and uh, before I get into that, I want to talk briefly about the fact that I originally said that I didn't want to script my episodes, that I wanted to just kind of talk off the cuff, so to speak, and I was working off bullet points, and at first, you know, that was going really well, um, but the issue was is as I was writing out my bulleted list, my bullets were turning into sentences, which were turning into paragraphs, which was turning into a script. So then, <coughs> excuse me, I began to simply write out just a couple keywords. Make a sentence, excuse me, sorry. But I still, you know, knew what I was saying enough to formulate the sentence when I needed to. But I found that when it came time for me to record, I felt like I was under a lot of pressure and um, I found myself struggling, <coughs> excuse me, to um, put together <coughs> sentences and whatnot. Like I just, I felt like I couldn't perform. So it was um, a little more difficult than I thought it would be. So I decided that I'll just start writing these out so you'll notice from now on where it seems more written as opposed to where I actually go off on a little bit of a tangent because, you know, obviously I'll go from like, you know, the dry eyes guy to overly excited, you know, blah, 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 I'll talk in a mile a minute. Excuse me, sorry. Um, so, anyway, um... I just want to add, the main reason I explained that part was not because I feel like I owe anybody an explanation or, you know, not to be sound like being rude, like saying, oh, oh, you guys anything, but because it's just the way I think, you know what I mean? And our, our thought process is something that we do all the time. We can't turn that off. Some of us are constantly thinking like nonstop, some of us or whatever, you know what I mean? So, just to share my thought process, because I know sometimes of with the way I think, I feel like I'm the only person that thinks the way I do. So, maybe if I share how I think things through and how I process, somebody else will see that, hey, you know, maybe I'm not alone. And in return, maybe I'll see that I'm not alone. So, you know, guess we'll see. But anyway... Um, so this episode, like I said, is about, I want to talk about loneliness and or feeling lonely. I do believe there's a difference between feeling lonely and feeling alone. The best way I can explain it, and again, this is my feelings about it, is that lonely is where you have people around, but they're not necessarily available or they're not necessarily available to the degree that you would prefer, meaning that you have friends you could call, but maybe you feel like a burden, so you don't want to call. Or, um, you know, 
like my instant my case is I have people I talk to over text every single day but I don't actually physically hang out with anybody so not my friends are available via text but they're not necessarily available to the degree that I would prefer I would prefer to actually hang out <coughs> excuse me in person at least a little more often as opposed to pretty much never um so you know and to me that makes me feel lonely because you know I would like to hang out with them but again I'm not alone because somebody's around they're just not there um so, and again so alone is there's no one to call there's no one to text um if there's something that you want to talk about you can't for whatever reason you absolutely have to keep it to yourself um you know and it, it could be situational situationally alone like it's, it's two o'clock in the morning or again like i said there's something you want to tell somebody but you absolutely can't tell anyone um or like you know it's uh it's like i said it's two o'clock in the morning and your friends work day shift so you know there's there's nobody to call because of what time of the day it is you know what i mean um, or there just really is nobody and unfortunately some people do find themselves in that situation but if you find yourself in a situation where there absolutely is nobody to call there are resources if you go to my webpage to crazypodcast.com and that's t-o-o crazypodcast.com there's a whole list of different hotlines and I do believe if you text HOME to 741741, that's a text hotline. They will talk to you. So if you're having any issues, you know, I mean, or you need, you feel alone, you need to talk to someone, they'll definitely talk to you via text. Um, so there's always somebody, even if it's somebody you don't know. So an example I, I experienced recently of being alone was um, I had recently had uh, back surgery on January 10th and I was under the impression somebody was going to stay with me the first night that I was in the hospital and it turned out that they indeed weren't and we ended up getting in a little bit of an argument about it and um, basically they called me a name I told them not to come back and then they left and I felt like I was completely alone there was nobody to call I felt weird I was you know still coming off the of sedation they had me on a lot of pain medication I was dopey I was drugged up I you know I didn't know what was going on I didn't know you know I was feeling weird things I was feeling things I felt like I shouldn't feel not feeling things I felt like I should feel and um i mean i was just like i was really scared that that first night was really freaking scary for me and i like i said i felt completely alone because i thought that this person was going to be staying overnight with me and like i said there there was just absolutely nobody else to call i mean it's like almost 10 o'clock at night the hospital's not letting visitors in anymore and my phone was pretty much dead and um I don't think I was operating at full capacity enough to even try to reach out to somebody and say, hey, can you come and stay? And honestly, I would have felt guilt. I felt guilty, like, to even think to ask, you know what I mean? So uh, I felt very alone that night. 
And um, I, I have felt both lonely and alone simultaneously even. I'm not sure I can explain it, but, um, you know, I think uh, on my, my surgery, I felt lonely and alone at the same time. There were times when I knew somebody would be visiting at some point, and that uh, kind of made me feel lonely because I knew, you know, somebody would be back at some point, or I, you know, I knew, um, I mean, somebody was there for a little bit, you know, um, but then there were times when I didn't know if anybody was coming or when they would be coming, and that made me feel kind of alone because, you know, people say they're coming, you don't want to reach out and be like, so when are you coming? You know, they already said they would, so you're just kind of waiting. Um, I also felt lonely and alone because I had friends that said they would come that didn't come. I had friends that I would have sworn would have come that didn't come, uh, that I didn't even hear from even. Um, so, I mean, it is what it is, but you know, it's kind of stuff that makes you feel lonely and or alone, but, uh, you know, there's not a whole lot you can do about that. So I live alone. It's just my cat and myself. My cat Zelda. If you've been to the, the website, you should have seen her inside of a chip box. Um, I've been out of work since March due to a work injury. I went through a breakup in June. I moved into my own apartment in July. Uh, and this is my first time living completely alone. Um, I've never lived without roommates or a partner or somebody. I've always lived with another person. Um, I don't have much company and I don't go out very much. All my friends work and some have partners and even families. So I have less contact with some than others. Uh, I literally have nine friends, seven of which I text with daily and two of those are long distance friendships. Um, and I, I miss being physically with people at times. And, and that's the big thing when I said, I'm so grateful for the friends that I do have because they're loyal and they're true friends. These are friends that I know I can count on for anything in the world. Like I said, you know, and not many people can say they even have one friend that that's that, that is that loyal. And I understand that. And I am beyond gracious, <coughs> pardon me, for the friends that I have. And I love them so much. But... I do miss being with people physically. I do miss watching a movie with somebody. I do miss playing a board game with somebody. I do miss that interaction of camaraderie. And I don't just mean running errands. I don't just mean, you know, going to appointments, but actually like engaging in activities that are recreational and enjoyable that kind of stuff because I mean running errands and stuff like that is almost like going to work you know but I don't know how to explain that one but um I don't know so anyway um I spend I do spend a lot of time by myself but sometimes that really gets to me um I do game, so, you know, I should play more online. I should actually turn my mic on more and talk to people that way. I could probably make more online gaming friends. 
and that would probably help with it. Um, I do find myself sometimes struggling with being lonely because I'll start to feel lonely and then I start to feel restless and then I start to, um, I don't really want to say get angry, but I get irritated because I don't know what to do with myself and nothing really holds my interest and I just, you know what I mean? I just have a really hard time doing anything. So it's like, you know, people always say, you know, find something you enjoy and do that. Well, sometimes it's hard because you get frustrated. You're like, wow, I'm lonely. I'm alone. I don't really want to go out and do this. I don't want to do that. But I really do want to do that and blah, 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 you know, whatever. And um, I don't know. It's just a cycle. Like you want to have company to some degree but maybe not necessarily want to deal with or may not be ready to, you know, like that's me. I'm not really ready to go out and test the world, so to say. So I end up in this vicious cycle of being lonely and then being frustrated about it and then not being able to do anything that I enjoy and then becoming bored and then becoming more frustrated and the vicious cycle just goes on and on and on. Um, so one thing I have to admit, though, that I am very proud of myself is I have not started dating or being with anybody just because I'm bored um, or not even bored, but because I'm lonely is what I meant to say. I'm sorry, but bored, too. But um, normally when I was younger, I would just date somebody so that I wasn't alone because I couldn't deal with the loneliness because it was just too much and um, I ended up in a couple of really bad relationships because of that and I lost a lot of time to those relationships because of that and uh, you know a lot of things that I just can't get back and I can't undo but you know it is what it is but this time around I've decided that until being lonely is a neutral feeling I'm not going to date as long as it is a negative feeling as long as it makes me bored as long as it makes me unable to concentrate as long as it makes me frustrated irritable whatever I'm not going to date anybody because if I can't be okay in my own company then I need, there's still things I need to work on with me. There's still things that I need to address within myself because I should be comfortable with my own company. It doesn't mean I should be happy. It doesn't mean I should be necessarily like, woohoo, I'm alone. You know what I mean? I'm not saying anybody should ever feel alone and be okay with it or feel lonely and be okay with it. <clears throat> but we shouldn't have to depend on the presence of other people to be happy and that's just how I feel I don't want to depend on having to have somebody else around me to dictate positive feelings you know so I believe I talked about me enough although I'll go and play this recording and it'll probably only be like 20 minutes <laughs> I've been trying to get these to be about 30 minutes or longer it's a little tough sometimes so I'm going to go browse the web and see if I can find any good tips on how to deal with feeling lonely. And then I'll go and I'll read, try to read a chapter of I Hate You, Don't Leave Me. Um, 
I think the chapters might be long, so we might only do half the chapter. Um, so we'll see in a second. So I found an article on goodhousekeeping.com called 12 Things to Do When You're Feeling Lonely, According to Experts, by Adele Jackson Gibson, September 9th, 2019. Number one, name it, validate it. Tell someone that you're lonely. Expressing it can be the first step to releasing it. Just like they say in AA and NA, the first step to fixing the problem is admitting there's a problem. Not necessarily saying that being lonely is a problem, but the first step to fix being lonely is to admit that you're lonely. So find someone you trust, a therapist, a friend, a family member, your pet, and admit to them, admit to yourself Sometimes putting it out there, speaking it, you know, it just takes that extra weight off. You're like, wow, okay, that's what it is. Now I can begin to work on it. Number two, take stock of the connections you already have. Think about the friends, the family members that you do have. You might be surprised. You might actually have more people in your corner than you think you do. Number three, recognize you are not alone and feeling lonely. 22% of Americans feel constantly lonely. <clears throat> this is quite a few people. I mean, I'm not entirely sure how many people are on the planet, but I know there's quite a lot. Um, so that's quite a bit of people. Uh, one second, I'm sorry. Number four, get curious, ask questions. I didn't elaborate on this one because it was a quote and I probably should have because I forget what it says. Number five, take time to slow down. If you're constantly busy, take some time to relax. So take some time to yourself to, you know, kind of take a bubble bath. Take a, go get yourself a massage, a foot massage. Go get your eyebrows waxed, whatever helps you unwind. Number six, reconnect with self-love and appreciation. Use the alone time for self-care and to get back in touch with yourself. Sometimes a nice long bubble bath, a good glass of wine if you are able to, if you're a recovering alcoholic or completely against alcohol or anything like that, then I apologize, you know, apple cider, whatever your choice is, not to sound. Number seven, perform anonymous acts of kindness. Number eight, join a club where you can do a bowling team, where you can find something like a weekly activity or bi-weekly or even monthly activity. Like I know in my area, there's a bingo, uh, a kinky bingo lifestyle that uh, a friend of mine introduced me to, and I really enjoyed that. So I think we're going to go back. Um, number nine, put your hand over your heart. Uh, we're social creatures. We... Um, 
thrive on, you know, interaction and touch. So putting your hand over your heart gives yourself that support of self-touch. Number 10, create something. Make a piece of art. Draw a picture. Even if you just pull out a coloring book, just, you know, you might find that that's really relaxing, really meditative. And then it also, it gives you a goal that you can reach. Your goal is to finish coloring that picture. Your goal is to finish that drawing. Your goal is to finish that painting. And then you do. And then not only did you make something wonderful or color a beautiful picture or whatever the case was that you did, but you also set a goal and achieved that goal. 11. Check your social media usage. It's undecided whether or not social media usage really has an effect, but it cannot hurt to see how your usage habits may affect you. If you notice that when you use Facebook or Instagram or whatever a lot, that it makes you more depressed or anxious, then you may want to cut back. If you notice that you find yourself comparing yourself to others quite often if you find yourself wondering you know why not me then maybe you should cut back a little bit number 12 work with a mental health professional i always highly suggest working with a mental health professional if you feel like you need to um therapies like cbt cognitive behavioral therapy and dbt Dialectical behavioral therapy, in my opinion, really work if you're willing to make it work. It's like any program, if you work it, if you, if you do the work, it'll work for you. If you work the program, the program will work for you. So, I mean, you know, not, there's no such thing as like a miracle cure. You can't just throw a blanket over the dirt and it's going to go away, so to say. It's, you have to actually take the broom and the mop and the, like, the, the pine saw and all that good stuff and actually clean the floors. I mean, it just is what it is. So, with that being said, we're going to go ahead and jump into this chapter of this book here. Alright, so I Hate You, Don't Leave Me, Understanding the Borderline Personality by Gerald J. Kreisman, M.D. and Hall Strauss. The world of the borderline. Everything looked and sounded unreal. Nothing was what it is. That's what I wanted. To be alone with myself in another world where truth is untrue and life can hide from itself. From Long Day's Journey into Night by Eugene O'Neill. Dr. White thought it would be rel all relatively straightforward. Over the five years he had been treating Jennifer, she had few medical problems. Her stomach complaints were probably due to gastritis, he thought, so he treated her with antacids. But when her stomach pains became more intense despite treatment and routine testing proved normal, Dr. White admitted Jennifer to the hospital. After a thorough medical workup, Dr. White inquired about stresses Jennifer might be experiencing at work and home. She readily acknowledged that her job as a personal manager for a major corporation was very pressured. But, as she put it, many people have pressured jobs. She also revealed that her home life was more hectic recently. She was trying to cope with her husband's busy legal practice while tending to the responsibilities of being a mother. 
but she doubted the connection of these factors to her stomach pain. When Dr. White recommended that Jennifer seek psychiatric consultation, she initially resisted. It was only after her discomfort... Excuse me. I can't get the page turned. ...turned into stabs of pain that she reluctantly agreed to see the psychiatrist, Dr. Gray. They met a few days later. Jennifer, Jennifer was an attractive blonde woman who appeared younger than her 28 years. She lay in bed in a hospital room that had been transformed from an, an, an anonymous cubicle into a personalized lair. A stuffed animal sat next to her in bed and another lay on the nightstand beside several pictures of her husband and son. Get well cards were meticulously displayed in the long line on the windowsill, flanked by flower arrangements. At first, Jennifer was very formal, answering all of Dr. Gray's questions with great seriousness. Then she joked about how her job was driving me to see a shrink. The longer she talked, the shatter she looked. Her voice became less domineering and more childlike. She told him how a job promotion was exacting more demands new responsibilities that were making her feel insecure. Her five-year-old son was starting school, which was proving to be a difficult separation for both of them. Conflicts with Alan, her husband, were increasing. She described rapid mood swings and trouble sleeping. Her appetite had steadily decreased and she was losing weight. Her concentration, energy, and sex drive had all diminished. Dr. Gray recommended a trial of antidepressant medications, which improved her gastric symptoms and seemed to normalize her sleeping patterns. In a few days, she was ready for discharge and agreed to continue outpatient therapy. Over the following weeks, Jennifer talked more about her upbringing. Reared in a small town, she was the daughter of a prominent businessman and his socialite wife. Her father, an elder in the local church, demanded perfection from his daughter and her two older brothers, constantly reminding the children that the community was scrutinizing their behavior. Jennifer's grades, her behavior, even her thoughts were never quite good enough. She feared her father, yet constantly and unsuccessfully sought his approval. Her mother remained passive and detached. Her parents evaluated her friends, often deeming them unacceptable. As a result, she had few friends and even fewer dates. Jennifer described her roller coaster emotions, which seemed to have worsened when she started college. She began drinking for the first time, sometimes to excess. Without warning, she would feel lonely and depressed, and then high with happiness and love. On occasion, she would burst out in rage against her friends, fits of anger that she had somehow managed to suppress as a child. It was about time that she also began about this time that she also began to appreciate the attention of men, something she had previously always avoided. Though she enjoyed being desired, she always felt like she was fooling or tricking them somehow. After she began dating a man, she would sabotage the relationship by stirring up conflict. She met Alan as he was completing his law studies. He pursued her relentlessly and refused to be driven away when she tried to back off. He liked to choose her clothes and advise her on how to walk, how to talk, and how to eat nutritiously. He insisted she accompany him to the gym where he frequently worked out. Alan gave me an identity, she explained. He advised her on how to interact with his society partners and clients, when to be aggressive, when to be demure. 
She developed a cast of repertoire players, characters or roles whom she could call to the stage on cue. They married at Allen's insistence, insistence before the end of her junior year. She quit school and began working as a receptionist, but her employer recognized her intelligence and promoted her to more responsible jobs. At home, however, things began to sour. Allen's career and his interest in bodybuilding caused him to spend more time away from home, which Jennifer hated. Sometimes she would start fights to keep him home a little longer. Frequently, she would provoke him into hitting her. Afterwards, she would invite him to make love to her. Jennifer had few friends. She devalued women as gossipy and uninteresting. She hoped that Scott's birth, coming two years after her marriage, would provide the comfort she lacked. She felt her son would always love her and always be there for her. But the demands of an infant were overwhelming, and after a while, Jennifer decided to return to work. Despite frequent praise and success at work, Jennifer continued to feel insecure that she was faking it. She became sexually involved with a co-worker who was almost 40 years her senior. Usually I'm okay, she told Dr. Gray, but there's another side that takes over and controls me. I'm a good mother, but my other side makes me a whore. It makes me act crazy. Jennifer continued to deride herself, particularly when alone. During times of solitude, she would feel abandoned, which she attributed to her own unworthiness. Anxiety would threaten to overwhelm her unless she found some kind of relief. Sometimes she'd indulge in eating binges, once consuming an entire bowl of cookie batter. She would spend long hours gazing at pictures of her son and husband, trying to keep them alive in my brain. Jennifer's physical appearance at her therapy sessions fluctuated dramatically. When coming directly from work, she would dress in a business suit ex that exuded maturity and sophistication. But on days off, she showed up in short pants and knee socks with her hair in braids. At these appointments, she acted like a little girl with a high-pitched voice and a more limited vocabulary. Sometimes she would transform right before Dr. Gray's eyes. She could be insightful and intelligent, working collaboratively toward greater self-understanding, and then become a child, coquettish and seductive, pronouncing herself incapable of functioning in the adult world. She could be charming and ingratiating or manipulative and hostile. She could storm out of one session, vowing never to return, at the n and at the next session, cowered with fear that Dr. Gray would refuse to see her again. Jennifer felt like a child in the armor of an adult. She was perplexed at the respect she received from other adults. She expected them to see her through her disguise at any moment, revealing her as the empress with no clothes. She needed someone to love and protect her from the world. She desperately sought closeness, but when someone came too close, she ran. Jennifer is afflicted with borderline personality disorder, BPD. She is not alone. Recent studies estimate that 18 million or more Americans, almost 6% of that population, almost 6% of the population, exhibit primary symptoms of BPD, and many studies suggest this figure is, under, is an underestimation. Approximately 10% of psychiatric patients and 20% of inpatients 
in between 15 and 25 percent of all patients seeking psychiatric care are diagnosed with the disorder. It is one of the most common of all personality disorders. Yet despite its prevalence, BPD remains relatively unknown to the general public. Ask the man on the street about anxiety, depression, or alcoholism, and he would probably be able to provide a sketchy, if not technically accurate, description of the illness. Ask him to define borderline personality disorder, and he will probably give you a blank stare. Ask an experienced mental health clinician about the disorder, on the other hand, and you will get a much different response. She will sigh deeply and exclaim that of all the psychiatric patients, borderlines are the most difficult, the most dreaded, and the most to be avoided. More than schizophrenics, more than alcoholics, more than any other patient, for more than a decade, BPD has been lurking as a kind of third world of mental illness, indistinct, massive, and vaguely threatening. BPD has been under-recognized partly because the diagnosis is still relatively new. For years, borderline was used as a catch-all category for patients who did not fit more established diagnoses. People described as borderline seemed more ill than neurotics who experienced severe anxiety secondary to emotional conflict yet less ill than psychotics, whose detachment from reality makes normal functioning impossible. The disorder also coexists with and borders on other mental illnesses, depression, anxiety, bipolar, manic depressive disorder, schizophrenia, somatization disorder, hypochondriasis, disassociative identity disorder, multiple personality, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, ADHD, post-traumatic stress disorder, alcoholism, drug abuse, including nicotine dependence, eating disorders, phobias, obsessive compulsive disorder, hysteria, sociopathy, and other personality disorders. Though the term borderline was first coined in the 1930s, the condition was not clearly defined until the 1970s. For years, psychiatrists could not seem to agree on the separate existence of the syndrome much less on the specific symptoms necessary for diagnosis. But as more and more people began to seek therapy for a unique set of life problems, the parameters of the disorder crystallized. In 1980, the diagnosis of borderline personality disorder was first defined in the American Psychiatric Association third edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Illness Disorder of Mental Disorders, excuse me. DSM-3, the Diagnostic quote-unquote Bible of the Psychiatric possession, Profession. Since then, several revisions of the DSM have been produced, the most recent being DSM-4-TR, published in 2000. Though various schools within psychiatry still quarrel over the exact nature, causes, and treatment of BPD, the disorder is officially recognized as a major mental health problem in America today. Indeed, BPD patients consume a greater percentage of mental health services than those with just about any other diagnosis. Additionally, studies corroborate that about 90% of patients with the BPD diagnosis also share at least one other major psychiatric diagnosis. In many ways, the borderline syndrome has been to psychiatry what the virus is to general medicine, an inexact term for a vague but pernicious, pernicious 
illness that is frustrating to treat, difficult to define, and impossible for the doctor to explain and adequately to his patient. Demographic borders. Who are the borderline people one meets in everyday life? Excuse me for one second. She is Carol, a friend since grade school. Over a and tells you that you were really never really her friend at all. Weeks or months later, Carol calls back congenial and blase as if nothing had happened between you. He is Bob, a boss in your office. One day, Bob bestows glowing praise on your efforts in a routine assignment. Another day, he, he berates you for an insignificant error. At times, he is reserved and distant. Other times, he is suddenly and uproariously one of the boys. She is Arlene, your son's girlfriend. One week she is the picture of preppy, the next she is the epitome of punk. She breaks up with your son one night, only to return hours later, pledging endless devotion. He is Brett, your next-door neighbor. Unable to come to grips with his collapsing marriage, he denies his wife's obvious unfaithfulness in one breath, and then takes complete blame for it in the next. He clings desperately to his family, caroming from guilt and self-loathing to raging attacks on his wife and children who have so unfairly accused him. If the people in these, sh these short profiles seem inconsistent, it should not be surprising. Inconsistency is the hallmark of BPD. Unable to tolerate paradox, borderlines are walking paradoxes. Human catch 22 their inconsistency is a major reason why mental health professional profession has had such difficulty defining a uniform set of criteria for the illness. If these people seem all too familiar, this also should not be surprising. The chances are good that you have a spouse, relative, close friend, or coworker who is borderline. Perhaps you know a little bit about BPD or recognize borderline characteristics within yourself. Though it is me, though it is difficult to get a firm grasp on the, on, on the figures, mental health professionals generally agree that the number of borderlines in the general population is growing and at a rapid pace, though some observers claim that this is the therapist's awareness of the disorder that is growing rather than the number of borderlines. Is borderline personality really a modern-day plague or is merely the diagnostic label borderline new? In any event, the disorder has provided new insight into the psychological framework of several related conditions. Numerous studies have linked BPD with anorexia, bulimia, ADHD, drug addiction, and teenage suicide all of which have increased alarmingly over the last decade. Some studies uncovered BPD in almost 50% of all patients admitted to a facility for an eating disorder. Other studies have found that over 50% of substance abusers also fulfill criteria for BPD. Self-destructive tendencies or suicidal gestures are very common among borderlines. Indeed, they are one of the syndrome's defining criteria. As many as 70% of BPD patients attempt suicide, the incidence of documented death by suicide is about 8-10% to 10 and even higher for borderline adolescents. A history of previous suicide attempts, a chaotic family life, and a lack of support systems 
increase the likelihood. The risk multiplies even more among borderline patients who also suffer from depressive, manic depressive, bi bipolar disorders, or from alcoholism or drug abuse. Before 1980, the previous two editions of the DSM described psychiatric illnesses in descriptive terms. However, DSM-3 described, defined psychiatric disorders along structured categorical paradigms that, that is, several symptoms have been proposed to be suggestive of a particular diagnosis. And when a certain number of these criteria are met, the individual is considered to fulfill the categorical requirements for diagnosis. Interestingly, in the four revisions of DSM since 1980, only minor adjustments have been made to the def definitional criteria for BPD. And we shall see shortly nine criteria are associated with BPD, and an individual qualifies for the diagnosis if he exhibits five or more of the nine. The categorical paradigm has stimulated controversy among psychiatrists, especially regarding the diagnosis of personality disorders. Unlike most other psychiatric illnesses, personality disorders are generally considered to develop in early adulthood and to persist for extended periods. These personality traits tend to be enduring and change only gradually over time. However, the categorical system of definitions may result in an unrealistically abrupt diagnostic change. In relation to BPD, a borderline patient who exhibits five symptoms of BPD theoretically ceases to be considered borderline if one symptom changes. Such a precipitous cure seems inconsistent with the concept of personality. Some researchers have suggested adjusting the DSM to a dimensional approach to diagnosis. Such a model would attempt to determine what could be called degrees of borderline, since clearly some borderlines function at higher, at higher levels than others. These authors suggest that, rather than concluding that, that an individual is or is not borderline, the disorder should be recognized along a spectrum. This approach would put different weights on some of the defining criteria, depending on which symptoms are shown by research by research to be more prevalent and enduring. Such a method could develop a representative, pure, borderline prototype, which could standardize measures on how closely a patient matches the description. A dimensional approach might be used to measure functional impairment. In this way, a higher or lower functioning borderline would be identified by her ability to manage her usual tasks of living. Another methodology would gauge particular traits, such as impulsivity, novelty seeking, reward dependence, harm avoidance, neuroticism, capturing such characteristics as vulnerability to stress, poor impulse control, anxiety, mood liability, liability etc. that have been associated with BPD. Such adaptations way more accurately measure changes and degrees of improvement rather than merely determining the presence or absence of the disorder. To understand the difference between these two differential approaches, consider the way we perceive gender. The determination that one is male or female is a categorical definition, based on objective genetic and hormonal factors. Designations of masculinity or femininity, however, 
are dimensional con are dimensional concepts influenced by personal cultural and other less objective criteria it is likely that future iterations of the dsm will incorporate dimensional features of diagnosis diagnosis of bpd the most recent dsm 4tr lists nine categorical criteria for bpd five of which you must must be present for diagnosis at first glance this criteria may seem unconnected or only peripherally related when explored in depth however the nine symptoms are are seen to be intricately connected interacting with each other so that one symptom sparks the rise of another like the pistons of a combustion engine the nine criteria may be summarized as follows each is described in depth in chapter two number one frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment number two unstable and intense interpersonal relationships number three lack of clear sense of identity number four impulsiveness and potentially self-damaging behaviors such as substance abuse sex shoplifting reckless driving binge eating five recurrent suicidal threats or gestures or self-mutilating behaviors six severe mood shifts and extreme reactivity to situational stresses seven chronic feelings of emptiness eight frequent and inappropriate displays of anger nine transient stress-related feelings of unreality or paranoia this constellation of nine symptoms can be grouped into four primary areas towards which treatment is frequently directed number one mood instability criteria one six seven and eight two impulsivity and dangerous uncontrolled behavior criteria four and five three interpersonal psychopathology criteria two and three four distortions of thought and perception okay so next time we come back we'll do the other half of chapter one because like i said this chapter is pretty long so yeah when we come back we'll do the other half of that so it was fun talking to you uh go over to two crazy podcasts t-o-o crazy podcast.com the book is there the whole book i hate you don't leave me is there in the resources section along with other books workbooks work pages handouts all kinds of other resources just go ahead and um take a perusal on through and see what's there um i plan on working on the other sections too but for now the resources are pretty full there's plenty of hotlines if you need a hotline you need somebody to talk to there's plenty of books like i said plenty of web pages um you know i forget what else is there but again just check out the resources uh reach out to me if you need to and um until next time be safe